Amen, amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. This is one of those Sundays where we figure out who the real faithful people are, right? It's Labor Day weekend. It's a beautiful Sunday. You could be at the beach somewhere, settled in on vacation, but instead you chose to start your week in worship. I am grateful that you are here. I'm hopeful for what God is going to do in our midst. And because you decided to set aside Labor Day plans to celebrate what God has done with us, I want you to get your money's worth. And so I'll let you in on like a little secret. Normally, my sermon is about three pages of notes. But because I want you to get your money's worth, I've got eight pages of notes this morning. If you're visiting for the first time, I am sorry that this is the Sunday you came to say. We'll make our way through it pretty quick. But, but Ben left Top Gun School. He was playing beach volleyball shirtless all week. He came all the way from Indiana back to Florida. So I want to make sure you guys get your money's worth. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible, that's where we are going to be as we continue our study through the gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, so that, in order that, as the people of God, we might know, Luke says, that the things that we've heard about Jesus are true. And if we know that Jesus, what Jesus says is true, then Jesus can be trusted when he says the only way we can experience the fullness of life, all that life have to offer, is through a relationship with Jesus. And my guess is that all of us want to experience the fullness of life. Like, even if you're coming to faith for the very first time, if you just came, this is your first Sunday, Labor Day weekend, you thought no one would be here, so you tried to slip in, and you're just trying to figure out faith, we are glad you are here. But there's got to be something inside of you that knows when Jesus says the only way to fully experience life is to experience life with Jesus. And at the same time, if you're anything like me, you are tempted at times to try to take a shortcut to experience all that life has to offer. I saw that play out in my own life this week. This week is not just Labor Day weekend. It is also the kickoff, kickoff of the college football season. Is anyone else excited about that? Yeah, it's, it, the NFL's next week, college football this week. College football is like the pure football, right? They're not getting paid millions of dollars. It's a lot of fun. And UCF, our UCF Knights, the hometown team, got to kick off the college football kickoff weekend on Thursday night. They had a game. And so our family's been season ticket holders since before I was born. And I was so excited about getting to go to the first game of the college football season here at UCF Stadium. And we got ready. It was on Thursday night. Got next to no work done on Thursday because I was just so excited. It's the start of the football season. We took off all of last year because of the COVID protocols and things like that. And so this was the first time in over a year that we got to go to college football. And I was just so excited. We got there early. We got to the stadium. We got inside. And no sooner did we get inside the stadium than storm clouds started to roll in. I don't know if you remember what the weather was like on Thursday, but the game was supposed to kick off for the entire nation to see at 7 p.m. ESPN was there, nationwide coverage, and at 7.30, it was still lightning, and they weren't letting us up. So like 7.45, it was still lightning. 8 o'clock, 8.30, it's still lightning, and I was getting pretty weary. And I was wondering, are they really going to play this game? And everyone around us kept saying, yeah, they're going to play, they're going to play. But the storm clouds were rolling in. It looked like it was getting worse. This year, we have a two-year-old child with us. It was like 8.30 on a Thursday night. It's like, Carissa, we should just go home. We should just go home. If they play the game, we'll watch it on TV. But we need to get Brian home. We need to get her in bed. This game's not going to be over until 1.30 or 2 o'clock. And so sure enough, we packed everything up, grabbed the baby. We left the stadium. No sooner did we get home, guess what? 
They kicked off the game. The lightning, the lightning subsided. I got told today by UCF students that I am not a true UCF fan because I gave it up. But nonetheless, we turned on the TV, and I thought, this will be just as good, right? Like, if we turn the volume really loud, it'll feel like we're there. I had Carissa yelling profanities behind me just so it would feel like we were in the stadium. Uh, she does that. She, no, I'm just kidding. She's, not, she's serving in kids' ministry today because the team was out of town, so I don't even want to say anything bad about her. But the truth is, I fell asleep on my couch about midnight. I missed the greatest comeback in UCF history, and I completely missed out on the life-changing experience of being in the stadium. And I say that as somewhat of a funny story, though I say it with sorrow of heart, because I think we do the same thing when it comes to Jesus. Like, we know the way to fully experience life is to experience life with Jesus, that there is no substitute. You can watch the game. You can turn up the volume as loud as you want. But there's nothing like being there in the stadium. And so there's nothing like being with Jesus, going through life hand in hand with him. And if you're just trying to figure out what that looks like, I just invite you to join us over the course of the next, I don't know, six months or so as we go through the gospel of Luke. And we're going to unpack that in a timely fashion. But we look for shortcuts. But in, in, in looking for shortcuts, we inevitably shortchange the experience that God has for us. And we miss out on the fullness of life in Christ. That's where we're going today, this temptation for us to look for shortcuts that will lead us to shortchange the fullness of life that God has for us. Luke chapter 4 is where we are. If you have a Bible, if you find one on your phone somewhere, follow along with us. Luke chapter 4, we pick up the story moments after the baptism of Jesus. So just moments after Jesus went out to the Jordan River, he was baptized by John the baptizer. He comes up out of the water He's on this spiritual high, right? In fact, we had to skip it last week. But if you think about the baptism of Jesus, if you want to look back, chapter 3, Jesus goes out to the Jordan River. And John the baptizer, who's actually his cousin, he's out there baptizing people. And so Jesus goes out with the, the nation of Israel, these, these people, going out to be baptized by John. The Bible says to inaugurate, or I'm sorry, uh, what does it say? I, I just drew a blank. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus was going out there to inaugurate his ministry, to mark it as the starting point. The baptism was the starting point of his ministry, where he was going to uh, begin to introduce the kingdom of God, the much-anticipated kingdom of God, where the people of God can truly do life once and for all with God. And though Jesus did not have sin to repent for, he was symbolically, corporately repenting on behalf of Israel, saying that the kingdom of God is here, and in doing so, he set an example for us, that we also should be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can experience to be united with Christ. And Jesus goes out there and he's baptized, and Jesus' baptism was like, unlike any other baptism. He goes down into the water, he comes up out of the water, heaven is open, the Holy Spirit descends on him in visible form, and, the, and God the Father says audibly for all to hear, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. It was this mountaintop moment, even for Jesus, who is God, it was where the entire Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity were on display to anoint Jesus and to propel him into his ministry, the purpose for which he was uh, called to earth. The Holy Spirit is on visible displays, this mountaintop moment. And while you and I have never had that specific moment, perhaps we can think back to what it was like to have one of those spiritually high mountaintop moments. Can you think of a time in your life when you just felt like the presence of God was overwhelmingly powerful in your life? Maybe for you, it was the moment that you put your faith in Jesus for the very first time and you were baptized. And you remember what it felt like. It's supernatural feeling when you come up out of the water and your sins, the weight of the world just kind of washed away. Maybe for you, it was a time at church camp or 
church trip in high school or middle school or something like that, and you remember this entire week of worship, and you just felt called by God. You didn't know exactly where he was calling you, but to, to live a life for his glory, and you were all in. You would follow God wherever he went. Maybe it's when you started a family, and for the very first time, you realized that life is more than just about you, and you saw God's grace in a visible way. But it's that familiar feeling, that mountaintop moment where you're spiritual high, and you are ready to follow God wherever he leads. That's what's taking place as we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4 with Jesus. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in power on display. And Luke starts chapter 4 this way. He says, and Jesus. So picking up the story from the baptism. Full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from the Jordan. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. All right, so think about what's going on here. If you grew up in church, this is a familiar story. It's called The Temptation of Jesus. But if we just try to read this for the very first time, I really appreciated Kevin's meditation, communion meditation, because it reminded us that Jesus was divine, but he was also fully human, that he felt and experienced the same things we experience. Jesus is coming off this spiritual high. The Father is affirming that this is who you are. You are my son, and this is why you are called to earth, to be uh, the, the, the redemption for the people of God. Jesus is the spiritual high. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's tuned in to hear the Spirit's voice. He will follow him wherever he leads. And where does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus? Into the wilderness. Literally, from this mountaintop moment where he feels so close to God, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where for 40 days he goes without food. Not because he can't find any, right? It's not like naked and afraid or alone or something like that where they're out in the wilderness trying to get by. But he was intentionally going without food so he could be close to God. He was fasting from food so he could hear from God. Jesus goes from this mountaintop moment into the wilderness, which is kind of self-explanatory, but for the people of Israel, the wilderness marked a season of wondering and waiting on God in their past. When the Bible says that Jesus went out into the wilderness, the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, they would hear that where their forefathers went out into the wilderness and waited for 40 years, wandering around seemingly aimlessly, waiting for God to bring them into the promised land to bring them into the fullness of life that he promised. And while they were there is a season that marked failure. They constantly struggled with their faith in God and constantly turned away. But Jesus here goes out into the wilderness where their forefathers failed to put their faith in God to be faithful for us. And that's what we're going to see in the temptation of Jesus. It's more than he surpassed the temptation of the enemy. Jesus goes out into the wilderness where their forefathers failed to be faithful to God to be faithful for us. And Jesus leveraged the season of waiting, a period of 40 days in the wilderness, as a time to focus on God. Now, I know this isn't really the point of the sermon, but I know that there are a lot of people in our church that are in a season, you find yourself in a season of waiting. Much like the wilderness, the people of Israel, just, you feel like you're aiming, you're wandering aimlessly in life. And maybe you are waiting for God to give you a family or you're waiting to find the right relationship, or you're waiting for your next step at work. You're waiting for God to give you direction for where to work. You're waiting for a real clear diagnosis, or waiting for healing, or waiting for surgery, or waiting for a child to come back to faith, or waiting and waiting and waiting, and it feels like you're just in this season of waiting. 
But a season of waiting is never wasted when we leverage it to go closer to God. And what I have learned from these seasons of waiting, that this is often where God reveals and even prepares us for the purpose for which he called us. Even Jesus, whose purpose was clear from creation, after his baptism, before he started his ministry, was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be shaped, to be refreshed, for God to reveal himself and to prepare him for the purpose for which he is called. And I think there's a temptation for us to think that the, the, uh, the presence of trials or seasons of waiting means the absence of God. But remember, the Holy Spirit was the one who led Jesus to this season. So if you find yourself in a season of waiting, it's not wasted if you leverage it to grow closer to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. In between his baptism, the spiritually high moment, the Sermon on the Mount, and the calling of his first disciples, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for a period of 40 days. And he uses this time to focus on God, to hear what the Father has to say to him. And God is at work, but where God is at work, Satan always steps in to try to sidetrack the plans of God. So Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days, he's fasting, he's focused on God. Satan shows up to tempt Jesus, hoping to sidetrack him from his purpose, to convince him to shortchange the purpose or the promise of God, and to stop Jesus before he starts. And so before we look at how the devil works, I want to take just a moment to look at who the devil is, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions in our society, in our culture, about who the devil is. Like there's this, we kind of look at him on two ends of the spectrum, and maybe it's, it's rightfully so, but misunderstanding. We look at the devil and we, we struggle to take him seriously because our culture has portrayed him as this little red guy that sits on your shoulder trying to convince you of how to have fun, right? And he's like opposed to God, but he's really the fun side of the shoulder that you're tempted to listen to. And so you kind of struggle to take him seriously. In fact, like you've dressed up like him for Halloween because it's cute and there's a pitchfork and things like that, right? Or on the other side of the spectrum, you see the devil everywhere. And you think he's all powerful and you give him way too much credit and everything that happens, you blame on him. You know, you're on your way to work and you head a red light and you blame the devil when you show up 15 minutes late, but you got out of bed 45 minutes late. It's not the devil's fault, right? It's your fault. You overslept and you look, look and blame the devil for everything. But in reality, Satan is very real. He is not just a, a mysterious force that gets credit for all the things that go wrong in life. He's a real person. He's an angelic being who in his pride wanted to position himself above God. And so God cast him away from his presence and hosts of angels went with him. And so the devil is real and he's powerful, but he's not all powerful. He hates you and he wants to destroy you. He's not trying to help you to figure out, figure out how to have a fun way to live life. His goal is to destroy you. And from the very beginning, he shows up to turn the people of God away from God. Remember all the way back to the story of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, God has created this world. It is perfect. He's placed Adam and Eve in it to have an intimate, personal relationship with him. And in chapter 3, Satan shows up. He shows up in the form of a serpent, which should tell us everything we need to know, right? Stay away. But he shows up and he plants seeds of doubt and distrust with God. And he convinces Adam and Eve that there is a better way or a faster way to the fullness of life than the way that God had promised. They eat of the fruit, they sin, they fall for the rest of human history. Satan has been doing everything in his power to turn the people of God away from God. But he's not just showed up in Genesis, he's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we flip all the way to the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, hear how John describes the devil in Revelation chapter 12, and see if this doesn't give you a clear picture. Revelation chapter 12, we're just going to look at an assortment of verses that kind of give a picture of who, this, who the devil is. It says this, 
John writes, and the great dragon was thrown down. And so it's this symbolic, he's not a real dragon, but it's, it's how he looked, right? He's this, this force, this evil force was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He is the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels thrown down with him. And so you get this clear picture that he's, he is a, a real creation and he, he was cast down from God's presence. John goes on and he writes, he says, therefore, in verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But you, O earth and sea, for the devil has, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so what John is saying is the heavens rejoice because Satan has been cast down. But for those of us who live on the earth, like we are dealing with a very real enemy. He's wrathful and vengeful. He knows that his time is short, so he is working with tremendous urgency, trying to draw people away from God. It says, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so now we're talking about Jesus and his church. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war. It's very symbolic to make war on the rest of her offspring. That is you, the offspring of the church, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so you get this picture in the beginning that, that Satan shows up as a serpent to lead God's people away from God. And the, by the end of Revelation, he is described as a, a serpent or a dragon, this terrible creature who knows his time is short, who is under the power of God, but is using all of his power to draw the people of God away from God. And the devil is not someone to be messed with. He's not someone to be treated lightly. He's also not all powerful. And so we figure out where we fit into this. But here's the thing we take away. If nothing else, the devil hates you because you are associated with God. You were created by God to live for the glory of God. And because you are associated with God, you are Satan's enemy. Now, I try to think of a way to illustrate this, and I want to enter into it very quickly because the only illustration I could think of really aligned me with the devil, and that makes me very uncomfortable. But as a UCF football fan, I hate the school in Tampa. Do you know the one? We don't say the name here, right? USF. We hate that school. We, we hate that school. If you went there, I, hate, I don't hate you, but I think less of you. Uh, and so, like, my, I just says they're, they're the rival. They're UCS rival, and I hate everything about them. And I've realized as I meet people from Tampa that I don't just hate USF. Because as Tampa, USF is in Tampa, I hate everything associated with USF. I don't like Tampa. I don't go to the beach if I have to drive through Tampa. If people tell me there's a really good restaurant in Tampa, I don't need to go there, right? They have good restaurants here in Orlando. It's a completely inferior, inferior city uh, in school. And I just hate everything associated with it. We have a few people that go to Eastside from Tampa, and I am sowing seeds of doubt into trust, in distrust in their mind to turn them against their hometown. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but because you, even if you've yet to put your faith in God, are associated with God, and whether you realize it or not, we're created to live for the glory of God, Satan is waging war against you. He hates you. There's no, no part. He is, he's not your friend. He's not trying to convince you how to live a fun life. He is trying to destroy you. And he's at war with you. But the reason we might not know it is because the way Satan wages war is very subtle. Imagine if Satan just showed up in person. And like John tried to describe him, he's like this serpent or a dragon. And if you see a snake or a serpent, you stay as far away, right? If you go near a snake, you're a freak. You stay as far away from snakes as possible. It doesn't matter if it's a black snake or a coral snake or a king cobra. 
Did I tell you the story about my neighbor? I hate snakes. I hate snakes. And I have this single lady that lives next to me. She's a sweet lady, and she doesn't listen to the podcast, so I'll tell stories about her until she comes to church because she keeps ignoring my invitations. But she came over to me one day. I was out in the front yard mowing the yard, and she came over and waved me down, and she looked frantic. And she said, Adam, Adam, there is a king cobra in your yard. And I was like, Polly, we're on the wrong continent for a king cobra. She's like, no, it's a king cobra. I saw it. There's two of them, and I chased them under my fence. And I thought, first of all, you're wrong. It's probably a black snake. But if it was a king cobra, how much do you hate me to chase that thing under your fence into my yard? And so I don't talk to her anymore. Um, But if Satan showed up in a visible way and you saw his danger, you would run from him. You would find a shovel, you would cut off his head, you would wage war, you'd go to war. So Satan's tactic is not to show up in full force to look like a dragon or a snake. He shows up in subtle ways to sow seeds of doubt. And for that reason, even growing up in church, I think I have struggled with this story. Because when I look at it at first glance, like the temptation of Jesus... I don't see where the sin is as obviously as I feel like I should. And we're going to kind of unpack that in just a second. But before we get to the actual way the devil tempts us, read this. It says, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, Luke says one of the most obvious statements in all of scripture. What does it say? He was hungry. Like, no kidding, right? Like 40 days in the wilderness fasting. He's not hungry. He's famished. But that's when the devil shows up. And I I think Luke is so overly obvious to state that because he wants us to see that when the devil shows up, it's to tempt us when we are weakest. Like The devil doesn't come at you in your strength. When you're standing there worshiping God, I mean, he knows that your focus and affection and attention is on God. But when you are weak, that is when the devil shows up to tempt you. And when, when Jesus is hungry, he shows up and tempts him to turn stones into bread. You think you would be susceptible to a temptation if you had gone 40 days? Let's not even put you on Jesus' level. If you had gone 48 hours without food and someone showed up and tried to tempt you, you would be pretty weak. I know I am. In fact, when I am hungry or hangry, I am most susceptible to making bad decisions. This week, I, I saw that in unfortunately, very clear demonstration in my life. Chris and I decided that on September, we were going to start another round of Whole30, this healthy eating plan, because we got a little lax in our diet and we saw the effects of it, some weariness and some things in our life, fatigue. So we're going to start Whole30. And we've been planning this for like a week. Wednesday rolls around, September 1st, and we have a really good breakfast, Whole30, none of the junk that we've gotten used to eating. Lunch rolls around. Chris made a really nice lunch for us. The dinner came, dinner time came, and I found a free tea time at the golf course in our neighborhood, and I could not pass up free golf. And so I told Carissa about it. She's like, well, we don't have a babysitter. It's like, it's free. We'll bring Brighton with us. If she makes it miserable, we, got, we still got our money's worth, right? And so we're playing golf. It was like a last-minute decision. We, we kind of put a dinner on the back burner, uh, and we went out and we played golf in our neighborhood. It was like the second or third hole, and it hit me. Like, I'm starving. I haven't eaten in four hours. Forget 40 days, four hours. Like, I am super hungry. And, like, we played one more hole, and I was like, I've got to eat something. And so, like, I start digging through Brighton's diaper bag. I'm, like, stealing snacks from my two-year-old child. There's, like, Ritz crackers in there, so I eat half of the, the package of Ritz crackers. I just started feasting on these snack foods. She's got Cheerios, dry Cheerios, but I didn't care. I was just so hungry. I was eating it. And, like, Carissa came back to the golf course, and I've eaten, the time she took her to swing one swing, I've eaten half a thing of chips, and she's like, is Whole30 just completely out the window? And I said, yes, I got hungry. 
One bad decision led to more bad decisions. I went out for lunch the next day, Whole30 out the window, drank soda the next day, it just completely fell off the rails. But the illustration, I think whether it's something in life and with Jesus, is when we are weak, we are tempted to fail. And what the devil wants to do is he wants to tempt us while we're weak, because if he can tempt us while we're weak, it, one bad decision will often lead to more bad decisions. It'll make us feel like a failure. Instead of getting back on track as quickly as we can, we feel like we've blown it. And so Satan shows up when Jesus is weakest, and he tempts him in his weakness. Before we move into it, I want you to think about, like, what are your weakest moments when it comes to temptation? Like, if you're hungry, are you tempted to overeat? I found the more I do ministry and the more I live life with Jesus, for me and for many people that I hear, like, our weakest moments are when we are, are, are weak, when we are weary, when we are lonely, or when we are overwhelmed or bored. Does that make sense? Like, you're really strong when you're with your community group. And temptation, it just doesn't even seem like it's, it's, it's tempting you. But when you get home and you're alone and you've worked 65 hours and it just feels like you're exhausted, you can start to talk yourself into giving into some of the temptations. And when we are weakest is when we are most susceptible because that's when Satan shows up and tries to sidetrack us from the things that God is trying to do. It's exactly what he does in the story of Jesus. We're going to look at these temptations relatively quickly. Jesus was hungry, verse 3, it says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And so this is what I mean when I say, like, I look at this and I was like, Well, where is the sin? Like, Jesus is God. He can turn whatever he wants into whatever he wants. I mean, he created it all. In fact, in a couple chapters, he's going to multiply a few loaves of bread to feed a multitude of people. And so when, when Satan shows up and he says, like, turn these stones into bread. Jesus is hungry. The fast is coming to a conclusion. Forty days is over. Like, why? Where's the sin at? But what he's trying to do, when we dig a little deeper, when we see how Satan works, is he's trying to convince Jesus to take this morally neutral thing, stones and bread, and make them more important than God. Because Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's choosing to fast. God didn't make him fast. He's choosing to fast to focus on God. And when Satan shows up, he wants him to take this morally neutral thing and turn it into and, and prioritize it over God. That more important than God is turning the bread into food. And we do the same thing, not to mention that if Jesus were to turn the bread into food, he would use his supernatural ability and he would uh, use a supernatural ability to meet his human needs. And so it messed up the entire redemption story, which was Satan's goal. But he takes these morally, neutrally things, morally neutral things and, and prioritizes them above God. That's what we call idols. Right? When you take something, a good thing, and make it a God thing. We do this with all kinds of things. We do it with our family. Like, family is a good thing. But when you make it a God thing, it leads you away from God. Remember, we said children make terrible idols because they were created to leave you and forsake you. Right? Our family. Maybe it's a career. And you just make the career the most important thing in life. It's stones and it's food. It's just, it, it doesn't seem like it's a bad thing, but when you make it a God thing, or it's a relationship, or the desire for a relationship, or a family, or desire for a family, you make your kids money, pride. When you make a good thing a God thing, it leads to sin. It's, it's a way to sidetrack the plan of God. All right, next temptation. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him, verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you, I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This was the most convicting thing for me, not because 
I feel like anyone's going to give me all authority. But because what the devil was doing was he was trying to convince Jesus to take a shortcut and sidetrack him from the plan for which God had called him. All of this was, at the time, is still under the control of the enemy. Like, he is the prince of this world. He has tremendous power. It will all be God's in the end. I mean, it's ultimately God's now. You get what I'm saying. It will all be God's in the end. But the path for Jesus to glory was through hard times and trials and suffering and disappointment and discipline of his disciples and loneliness and rejection and ultimately death and resurrection. And what Satan was trying to do before Jesus even got started was convince him to take a shortcut to the destination that God had had him. If you will just worship me, Satan says, I'll basically just get out of your way and I'll just give it to you. You can, I know, I know you knew the plan before creation that you would come to redeem a fallen people, that you would suffer on a cross to take away their sins, that you'd be buried in a tomb, in a tomb like every other human, but you would be raised from the dead. That sounds like a terrible, terrible plan. Why don't you just take it now? Just worship me, I'll walk away, and it'll all be yours. Jesus saw right through it. He says, uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He resisted the temptation, but for all of human history, Satan has been trying to do the same thing to us. To convince, convince us to make a good thing a God thing and then to distract us or sidetrack us, to convince us to take a shortcut to where only God can ultimately take us. Saying the way that, the plan that God has for you is going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be seasons of waiting or wondering in the wilderness. There's going to be doubt and discouragement, disappointment. There's going to be times where you feel like you're alone. There's going to be times where you just find yourself saying, like, why does everything have to be so hard? And in those weak moments, Satan's going to show up and he's going to say, there's another way. Like the fullness of, of, a, of a relationship is found, the like fullness of marriage like is a perfect illustration is found when one husband marries one wife, they save themselves from marriage and they enjoy the intimacy of, a relation, of an intimate relationship. Satan shows up and he tries to convince you, that's, a, that's God's plan, but that's a terrible plan. Sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, like that will ultimately lead to joy. If you've gone down that road, like I've talked to enough people that know that it sounds fun in the moment, but it leads to discouragement and loneliness and heartache and it's the devil trying to convince us to take a sidetrack. Uh, 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 sorry, let's take a uh, shortcut. In so many other ways, Satan is going to show up when we are weak, and he's going to convince us that the path God has called us too hard. There's a shortcut, but a lot like a football game, there's no true shortcut to experience the fullness of life with Jesus, Jesus' way. Verse 9, it says, and finally temptation, it says, he took him up and set, uh, set him on Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's trying to convince Jesus to put God to the test, to also, it's another shortcut. Imagine if, if Jesus shows up in Jerusalem at this high point of the temple, he throws himself down and the angels lift him up. People would just start to follow him. If you walked out of here and you saw someone floating through the courtyard, you would just follow them because we follow people who float, right? But that's a shortcut. The way that Jesus was to get followers was through death, death to self, right? Self-denial, sacrifice, surrender. Jesus answered, Jesus said to him, it is, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the devil threw everything he had at Jesus. He's, he's powerful, but he's not all powerful. He's limited in his scope and his reach and the number of tricks he has. 
And so the devil threw everything he had at Jesus, and Jesus perfectly resisted temptation. It wasn't that he was tempted, but he chose not to sin. He chose not to make a good thing a God thing. He chose not to take a shortcut. He chose not to test God, but instead to trust God. And in doing so, Jesus was faithful, or we have failed to be faithful for us. And there's a lot we can learn here from Jesus' example. We, we see that we should avoid those moments where we are going to be weakest. Like if you know that when you get home at night with the computer by yourself, you are weak, avoid those moments, right? Put, leave the computer at the office or get a flip phone or something like that. Like avoid the moments of weakness. That's a good example. Jesus answered every temptation with scripture. You should be so, uh, you, if you want to really resist temptation, you should just saturate your mind with scripture, be renewed in mind. But I think the ultimate point in this story isn't for a model for how we resist temptation as much as realizing that Jesus resists temptation with us and for us. That when he went into the wilderness where the forefathers failed, he was faithful on our behalf. And I want to end with this. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're running a little long, but this is the last passage. It's only 13 verses. The Apostle Paul few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he writes to a church in the first century city of Corinth. It was a city uh, a lot like our city. It was a commercial city. There was anything you could desire was there. There was prostitution and wealth and all kinds of temptation. And to them, he says this, follow along. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So he's writing to Christians like you and I, that our fathers, speaking of the Old Testament people of Israel, were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that, flowed, that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they, were not, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so he's just taken us back to that Old Testament story where the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and God was there visibly in their midst cloud and fire he was leaving them he was providing water for them flowing from rocks and uh, manna from heaven and still they struggled and gave in to temptation he's taking them back to the wilderness moment the moment where jesus is is symbolically at verse six now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did and paul invites us just look back like if you think like what the devil is saying sounds like it might be a better way just look at the life of those who have already followed the devil down that road it, it might work for a moment but it ultimately leads to despair and ultimate death do not be idolaters don't make a good thing a god thing as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play and they kind of got in the motion of just thinking like this was life they were focused on themselves and they lost sight of god we must not indulge in sexual immorality if some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, the church, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's so much here. But what Paul's saying is if you think you can do this on your own, just take note. Because if you think you can resist temptation on your own, you're ultimately setting yourself up to fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You feel like, do you feel like I feel like sometimes? Like, why am I the only one who struggles with this temptation? Like, I've gone to war with it. I'm fighting temptation. And the more you share it in the context of a community or a church family, it's like, oh, yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. No temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to man. God is faithful. 
he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so Paul just takes the story and applies it directly to our life, that we are going to face temptation. We are going to face the temptation to take shortcuts on the plan that God has for us, to think that we can get the fullness of life somewhere other than Jesus. And what he's saying is, like, there is no temptation that is too strong for you. But when you are tempted, God is going to provide a way out so that you can escape it. He is the way out. Jesus went out into the wilderness where our forefathers failed and he was faithful for us so that as we face temptation every day we can depend on Jesus. We sang a song right before the sermon and one of the lyrics was when it says, when I cannot stand I'll fall on you. If we think, if I think we're going to resist temptation by our own efforts, we are fooling ourselves and we're going to end up looking like a fool falling flat on our face. But when we let Jesus go to war with us when we make Jesus the sole focus of our affection, the temptations start to fade into the back, background. We're a small church, and so without giving away too much, we're going to have the opportunity over the course of the next several weeks to hear some testimonies. We have several people in our church that are going to war with sin for the very first time, sin that they have struggled with some for 12, 15, 18 years, a daily struggle, a daily sin, and they've confessed to their community group leaders and their community groups, and, and every day, one day at a time, by God's strength, they're seeing victory over sin. Some have been plagued by sin. I, in fact, I, we're, I'm friends with a guy who texts me every day and tells me, oh, Nick, I just saw Lindsay's mom from Tampa. Are you from Tampa? No, okay. That was, Nick, Nick always texts me during service. Normally I don't have my phone because he's very distracting. But today it was part of the sermon. I don't know if you knew that or not. Every day he texts me, not Nick, someone else says, today, today was an, yesterday was another victory. Today I'm committing, not by my strength, but by God's strength, to continue free from this, the sin I'm struggling with for 24 hours. I'll text you tomorrow and let you know how it goes. Monday was 60 days free from sin he had struggled with for 18 years before coming to Eastside. And I, I just tell him every day what a testimony he is to the grace of God, that he, he's, he, he's a Christian wanting to, to fight his sin. But it wasn't until he found that Jesus was the one where he would stand, like Jesus was the one who would go to war with him, that he's found freedom. And I, say, I share that because that's all of our story. And if it's not your story, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're trying to live the fullness of life on your own, you are missing out. And we would love to share more with you. If you're faithfully following Jesus and you just feel like you're trapped in the rut of sin, know that he is here. He was faithful where we failed to be faithful for us. If we trust in him, he will deliver us from sin. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. It is only by the grace of Jesus that we get to gather here in your presence to proclaim the promises you've made for thousands of years. Father, we don't even need to look around us. We can look back at thousands of years of people who have gone to war with sin, who have found freedom because they put their faith in Jesus. And every day, by God's strength, not by theirs, they're going to war against temptation. They're choosing to take the long road, the hard road, because they know that it ultimately leads to life, that shortcuts will shortchange our experience with you. And Father, for our church, for our church family, for those who are visiting for the very first time, I just pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, Give us a desire to experience the fullness of life with you and then never allow us to settle for anything short of all that you have promised. Father, for where people are struggling with sin, where they find themselves weak, where they're growing weary, I pray for supernatural strength through the power of your Holy Spirit 
that we might leave here refreshed and recharged and refocused on you. But over the course of these next few weeks, as as we see you calling your first disciples and explaining what life with you looks like, that we might go all in, that we might lean in and take action and watch you work in ways that only you can take credit for. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.